This message was presented at the GYC 2011 conference. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Okay, I hope you're surviving the lunch. Um, you know, usually around this time, people start to get a little bit drowsy, and you know, we see that uh, even in terms of the attendance, um, the number of people is actually going down a little bit. Um, but I hope you're energized. I hope you're awake. And um, we're looking forward to this next session on discipleship. This is probably one of the most important sessions you want to be here for. Um, this is a session that will truly define the need and urgency of discipleship. Now, I hope you had a good lunch. Um, I actually missed breakfast this morning, and so I was starting to feel a little bit faint, and I tried to make sure I had some lunch. Um, tofu is one of my favorite meals. It's very flexible, and it also has a chemical called tryptophan, which makes you happier. And I love to be happy, so I eat a lot of tofu. And so, especially if you're presenting, it's good to be happy so that other people also feel comfortable as well. Um, but I hope you were blessed by Sebastian's message earlier on. And we are running off one another. Sebastian's working mostly on the life of Jesus and looking at discipleship principles that we could learn from the life of Jesus. My sessions look mostly at what happened beyond the life of Christ, looking more so at the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so, before we begin, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, asking for God's presence to be here in our midst. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this afternoon, Father, we want to thank you for the work you've already been doing. Thank you for each and every person who is here. Thank you, Lord, for those who came out this morning and felt the burden to come out again this afternoon. Father, we ask for an outpouring of your Spirit. We ask that this would not just be a regular meeting, but we pray that your Spirit would be poured out, that you give us a greater vision, a greater understanding of what discipleship was always meant to be, that this was the missing link that you'd call for in the Great Commission. We ask for wisdom. We ask for an open understanding. We ask for insight. As it said in John 14, verse 26, But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I've said unto you. We pray these things by faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. In 331 B.C., Alexander the Great was marching with his armies towards India. Alexander the Great had already conquered much of the known world, but nothing would stop him from conquering it all. As Alexander the Great approached his destination, he came across a well-fortified city. And as Alexander came to the city, he peered up the stone wall, and there he saw the king standing firmly upon the wall. And Alexander the Great shouted from a distance, Surrender! I am Alexander the Great. The king began to laugh. And he told Alexander the Great how his army outnumbered the army of Alexander the Great. But not only that, his army was willing to fight until the end. In response, Alexander the Great took a hundred of his most well-trained troops and told them to line up single file, 
heading toward a cliff. And as Alexander told them to go, the first soldier marched toward the edge of the cliff. And the soldier went forward and tumbled down and pummeled to his death. The second soldier also did likewise, continued to move toward the edge of the cliff and fell off the cliff and pummeled to his death. And so on and so forth, the third soldier, the fourth, all the way till the tenth. Then, as the eleventh soldier was about to fall to his death, Alexander the Great shouted, Halt! He then turned to the king, and the king was so astonished at the commitment of Alexander the Great's soldiers that he surrendered immediately. Alexander the Great then went on to conquer the known world. What if we as Christ's disciples could have the same level of commitment? Do you think we could turn this world upside down? If soldiers were committed to one general like Alexander the Great, how much more should we be committed to the cause of Christ? Do you believe that the apostles at the time of Jesus had the same level of commitment as the soldiers of Alexander the Great? We are told by the pen of inspiration in the book of education, the heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. And so many times in our churches we run evangelistic series hoping for results and yet we baptize people only to find out a year or two from now many of them have already left the church. But yet it doesn't matter what we pursue in our lives, what social cause we give our lives to. The pen of inspiration tells us that giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest purpose. Do you believe that God wants a revival of primitive godliness that was experienced at the time of the apostles? Do you believe that God wants to do something similar in the end time church as He did back at the time of Pentecost? What about the means? How is the gospel to be given to the ends of the earth? The Great Commission, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus who healed the blind, the Christ who calmed the raging seas, the Christ who unstopped the ears of the deaf and unblocked the mouths of the dumb, the same Christ came to His disciples just before He was going to ascend into heaven. And there in verse 18 to 20, He said, All authority has been given to Me on heaven and on earth. And then he concludes by saying, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. The authority that Christ had was not just for the twelve disciples two thousand years ago, but that authority was given to him even in our time now. Back then, there were twelve apostles. Today, I'm looking at a room with more than twelve. I'm looking at a generation of youth for Christ with over 5,000 people just here in North America. What is causing the delay? Is there a fundamental link that's been missing in our church? Jesus went on and said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 and 20, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. You know, oftentimes in the English, we translate the word go as a command. You hear many evangelists saying, go and baptize, evangelize and preach the gospel until everyone has a chance to hear. But in reality, when you look at the original Greek text, there's only one command that Jesus is making. Is that command to go? Is it to baptize? Is it to teach? Or is it to make disciples? Make disciples. There's only one command that Jesus gives. And that command is to make disciples. You make disciples by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. When Jesus said, go and baptize, he was talking about evangelism. But when he then talked about teaching others, he talked about training them. True discipleship is a combination of both. True discipleship involves evangelism, but it also involves training as well. We find that in the book of Acts chapter 2, when all the disciples came together in one accord, and they prayed earnestly for the outpouring of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God was poured out, a powerful evangelistic sermon was preached and 3,000 people were baptized. But that's not where the story ends. There's more to the story than that. It says here in Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Then those who gladly received His word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Those who heard the word of God received it, then chose to commit their lives to Christ by sealing it with baptism. Now, if you were to com conduct an evangelistic series in your home church and you had 3,000 baptisms, do you think this would be some news to write home about? Do you think this is something that would appear in your local conference magazine? I think the conference president would be more than thrilled if 3,000 baptisms were to take place. But oftentimes in our churches, that's where the story ends. There's more to it than this. Notice what it says in the following verse. It says in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Evangelism was followed by a systematic form of training. You found that discipleship took place in the context of small groups. They did not just meet in a megachurch. They did not just pat themselves on the back and say, Congratulations, you baptized 3,000 people. Peter was not called a great evangelist. But something dramatic happened straight after this baptism. You find that they gathered together in an organized form of small groups. And that's where the believers were beginning to get discipled. Notice what it says. They steadfastly continued in the apostles' doctrine. They gave themselves to Bible study. But they also continued in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. There were four elements to every small group, to every discipleship training group. The first was, they committed themselves to studying the Bible. Oftentimes when you have baptized believers, many of them have never studied the Word of God. And so they remain as spiritual babes in your church. You may give them all the responsibilities. You may assign them to be Sabbath school uh, whatever you call it, South School organizers. Um, you may call them to be your worship leader. But just giving them responsibilities 
does not mean that they've become a true disciple of Christ. It does not mean that they're spiritually mature Christians. They may still be spiritual babes. And before you know it, they may in fact leave the church. Evangelism without training leads to an eventual fallout in members. And if you come back tomorrow morning, I'll share some statistics with you on how evangelism alone does not work. Till today, the Seventh-day Adventist Church has focused primarily on evangelism but ignored training of disciples. But if on the other hand, all we do is attend seminars, if on the other hand, all we do is just study the Bible but do not witness, it leads us to become spiritually obese. But Christ calls us instead to witness but at the same time to train. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot evangelize without training. And you cannot train without evangelism. The two are combined and it leads to an explosion. Look what it says here in Acts chapter 2 verse 47. What were the results of systematic and organized training? It says, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now was it God who was doing the work? Was it just the Holy Spirit who was doing all the work? Were it the angels who were doing the work? It was the disciples who had been educated and trained after they were baptized. They heard the word of God through Peter's sermon. They received the word of God. They lived out the word of God by being trained as disciples. And finally, they shared the word of God. You know, oftentimes we think that when we baptize people, they will be spiritually mature. But not many people in our churches today have actually gone through a systematic form of training. Tomorrow, I'll be looking at how we can actually start in a practical, hands-on manner, practical discipleship in your local church, where baptized believers and even people who have been Adventists for many years can go through a systematic form of training to become active, vibrant disciples as you experienced in the time of the early church. But notice what it says here. It says in Acts chapter 6 verse 7, And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Notice what it says here carefully. The word of God increased. There's nothing greater that is needed today than having men and women who come along to GYC, who are filled with the Spirit of God, who are filled as Scripture-filled men and women, who are imbued with the Spirit and are saturated with the Word of God, because it's the Word of God through which the Holy Spirit ministers. In John 14, verse 26, Jesus said, And I will send you another Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, and he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said unto you. The function of the Holy Spirit is to bring back to remembrance that which we have already studied out in the Scriptures. Now, if you're not spending sufficient time in the Scriptures, can you truly be filled with the Holy Spirit? The infilling of the Holy Spirit is nothing more than being filled with the Word of God. And tomorrow I'll be sharing practical ways in how you can be filled with the Word of God enabling the Spirit of God to move in you in a powerful way. I remember an evangelist came to Melbourne 
the city in which I live in Australia in 2007. And this, in fact, was Pastor Mark Finley. He's conducting an evangelistic series there. And I was serving as a Bible worker, one of the 16 Bible workers during that series. And there's something I will never forget. Because when we asked his wife if there's something Pastor Finley could do to change in his ministry, what would it be? And you know what the answer she gave us was? She said, if there's one thing he could change, it would be this. That he would have memorized more scripture. Because when the word of God saturates your mind, it enables the Holy Spirit to work in you in a way like he's never worked before. When you hear about the infilling of this Holy Spirit, don't get too confused. Because it only means one thing. It means being filled with the word of God. Such that the Holy Spirit can bring back to remembrance that which you've already stored in your mind. When Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God, you also know when he avoided temptation, he did it by having the Word of God memorized in his mind. And I'll talk about that a little more tomorrow. But notice, when the disciples were systematically trained and discipled, it said that the number of disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And then in Acts chapter 9 verse 31, it says that the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee and Samaria had peace and were edified. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. The disciples were multiplying so fast that now Luke, the author of Acts, could no longer just contain them. The churches were bursting at the seams. And now he could no longer just call them disciples. He had to call them as individual churches. What started off in Jerusalem soon spread to Judea, Galilee and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. Can you see how God's master plan of evangelism in Matthew chapter 28 spread to the ends of the earth? It says they were walking in fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and they were multiplied. Could it be that God wants to do something similar in the 21st century? If the noblest cause that we can experience today is the giving of the gospel to the ends of the earth, could it be that God wants us to experience something similar through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, through the multiplication of disciples, and not just spiritual babes? In Acts chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, as the church starts to explode out of control, it says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. Therefore they that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word, until they had turned the world upside down. It's fascinating that when Saul was looking for the members of the church, when Saul was looking for disciples, he did not go to the nearest mega church, but he went instead into the houses because he knew that the life of the church did not exist in a church building. He knew that the life of the church existed beyond a physical building in the houses of people. As they met together in small groups, as they worshipped together, as they studied the Bible together, as they received discipleship training, that's where the explosion was taking place. When we build physical structures and think that this is it, 
This is where church exists. We are making a fundamental mistake. True discipleship takes place in the homes of believers. True discipleship takes place in the context of small groups when people come together and actively study the Word of God. It says, Therefore they were scattered abroad and went everywhere preaching the Word until they had turned the world upside down. And then in Acts chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, we sense that Paul, called Saul at that time, experiences the Damascus Road experience. And he is converted and becomes a faithful disciple of Christ. But the road for him was not always easy. It says, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But notice what it says after that. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. Barnabas was a man of God. When Barnabas saw Saul, he was not afraid of him. Because Barnabas was able to see the potential in Saul. He was able to disciple him and harness his potential such that Saul could one day become a flaming evangelist for God. Barnabas took him aside and brought him and presented him and defended him before the rest of the disciples. In Acts chapter 11 verse 22, the story continues. It says, And they sent Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. Barnabas was to go into uncharted territory and begin the work of missions. He is going to evangelize and disciple at the same time. How do I know this? Because it tells us in the following verses. But look what it says. He was supposed to go to Antioch, but where does he go instead? It says, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus, looking for Saul. Does that make sense to you? Barnabas is assigned to the territory of Antioch, but he goes instead to Tarsus to find Saul first. Why? Because Barnabas had poured his life out into Saul. Saul had become discouraged and had gone away, and Barnabas pursued after Saul, knowing that this was a man who could truly be a committed disciple for Christ. And so Barnabas goes out of his way seeking for Saul and brings him back to Antioch and starts to train the early believers back then. It's interesting because if you look later on in the book of Acts, you find that Paul does the very same thing. Paul finds that Macedonia is opened up to him. But he goes instead searching for Timothy. Because Timothy was someone he'd poured his life out into and brings him back to train him and equip him so that he can serve with him in Macedonia. And it says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch so that it was for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. For one year, Barnabas and Saul faithfully gathered and preached evangelistic series. For one year, Barnabas and Saul faithfully trained those who were baptized. It says they assembled and taught a great many people. Did Paul also do likewise? We saw that Jesus gave the Great Commission. The early disciples followed through on the master plan of evangelism. 
Barnabas taught Paul everything that he had learned. He faithfully discipled him for a whole year until the time that Paul had become spiritually mature in Christ. And he allowed Paul to now start on his own missionary journeys. Paul then went to Ephesus. Like Barnabas in Antioch, Paul was now going to uncharted territories of his own. And as Paul went into Ephesus, Ephesus was a significant place because Ephesus was a political center in Asia. Ephesus was a provincial capital in the Roman Empire for Asia. It had about half a million people. It was a large secular city. But not only was Ephesus a political center for Asia, Ephesus was also a center for commerce. It was said by the people back then that all roads converge in Ephesus. You can imagine that Paul must have started to think in his mind, if all roads converge in Ephesus, then surely the gospel could radiate to the ends of Asia if Paul was to train people right there and then. Ephesus was a political center, but it was also a commercial center as well. Finally, Ephesus was a religious center too. You find that the largest temple in Asia, the temple of Artemis, or what the Romans called Diana, was there in Ephesus as well. You find that this was a spiritualistic city, that people believed and had paganistic ideas. But it is this city that Paul went to. But what led the following to happen? It says in Acts chapter 19 verse 20, So the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. How could something like this happen in a spiritualistic city? You know, I recently came back from a mission trip to Taiwan and one of the pastors was telling us, and it was evident to all of us who were there, that wherever you go, the landscape is dotted with temples. Just around the church, if he went for a bike ride within 10 minute distance of the church, he said he counted about 50 large temples. The people were spiritualistic. They had pagan ideas. They worshipped their ancestors. And it was likewise in the time of Paul as well. Could it be that God wants to do something similar in large secular cities in the United States and around the world? What is the master plan of evangelism? Is it just conducting evangelistic series? Or is it also training disciples? Evangelism plus training leads to an explosion. The first step, in Acts chapter 19 verses 8 to 10, it says, And Paul went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Wherever Paul went, he did not go solo. He always brought a team with him. Tomorrow we'll discover that some of his team members were Timothy, Silas, and others. Paul trained and discipled a core team, and then he used to go into a secular city and start by conducting an evangelistic series. Can you see that when it says here, he spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Paul spoke boldly, presenting all the doctrines of the church. And then when people were baptized, 
the following happened. In Acts chapter 19, verses 8 to 10, it says, But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. When persecution was unleashed upon Paul, he took the baptized believers, including the disciples in his team that he had trained, and he went to a school of Tyrannus and began to train them and equip them to become spiritually mature in Christ. So the first step was evangelism. Wherever Paul went, he always started with an evangelistic series. But he did not just simply leave the place and go to the next town or city. Paul instead stayed there and trained and equipped the early disciples so that they could become spiritually mature. And then notice what it says, And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Paul started with evangelism, but he continued for two years discipling, training, and equipping the church members. Now, when you look at it in terms of proportions, three months compared with two years, what do you think Paul spent most of his time doing? He was not just an evangelist. Paul was also a trainer of the early baptized members. So many times in our church today, we focus on evangelism and evangelism alone. And so we hire an evangelist to come to our church and conduct an evangelistic series. The evangelist then leaves, and soon we are left with follow-up work to do. But many of these people are left as spiritual babes, and then they leave our church, and we think that evangelism does not work. Evangelism is fundamental to the church, but evangelism alone is not enough. The Bible model as presented by Jesus and continued by the early apostles, passed on to Paul, clearly shows us that evangelism needs to be combined with training. For two years, Paul stayed in one place at the school of Tyrannus, and he trained and equipped. He discipled the early believers. And notice what happened. The word of God spread to all in Asia. Now, was it Paul who was traveling from city to city, from town to town, from village to village, preaching the Word of God? According to the Bible, Paul stayed put in one location. But as the believers became spiritually mature, as they heard, as they received, as they lived out the Word of God, it was evident that they couldn't help but share the Word of God with others. And so Paul trained them but it was the disciples that did the preaching. Paul preached and then he trained. And as the believers became spiritually mature, they were the ones who spread out to the furthest corners in Asia and began to preach the Word of God to both Jews and Greeks. You know, it's estimated in one of the early Greek manuscripts that Paul would have lectured from about 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. every single day of the week. But if he took Sabbath off, let's just give him one day off for that week. And if he preached and trained for six days of the week, over those two years, he would have presented about 3,120 hours of gospel argument. 
Imagine this people came to the city of Ephesus and they heard about this crazy man by the name of Paul who was constantly training and equipping people. They were then visiting Ephesus not knowing what to expect. They would come and sit in on Paul's meetings and they would become converted and they would return to their homes and start preaching the word of God. Paul had a clear vision in his mind. Paul had a clear understanding of the Great Commission. When we look at the Great Commission, sometimes all we seem to emphasize is to go and baptize. But Jesus clearly had a much bigger vision. His only command was to make disciples. By baptizing, but also by training, everything that He had commanded us. Look what it says in letter chapter 34. Ellen White here was writing from the city of Melbourne, which is my city, and so I chose to include this quote. She said, In every large city, there should be organized, well-disciplined workers, not merely one or two, but scores should be set to work. She said, Not just spiritual babes, but workers for God. People cannot become workers if they've not been trained. She said, organized and well-disciplined workers, not just one or two, but scores should be set to work in every large city. In the book Christian Service, she also says, every church should be a training school for Christian workers. That was the original vision. That was the original blueprint for each and every local church. It was not just to do evangelism, but it was also to train and disciple. And it was through that that we would see an explosion take place. Now you cannot see it very clearly in this picture here. Uh, maybe if the lights were a little bit dimmer, you could actually see this. This is a picture I took in a recent mission trip to Taiwan. This is actually a very beautiful place in Hualien, which is on the east of Taiwan. Taiwan is just an island off the coast of Taiwan, uh, off the coast of China. And you can't really see it in this picture right now, but there's a large temple. And like I was saying before, regardless of where you go in Taiwan, it is surrounded by Buddhist temples. You cannot help but get the impression that people there are not just secular, but they have a yearning to know of a Savior. They have a yearning to know of a God. And a lot of their sacrifices are done not because they know God, but because they are fearful of what the future holds. And again, it's a little bit hard to see this picture here, but this is a picture of us at the train station where we conducted our evangelistic series, where we did our training for the church members. And it's a place called Salu. And it's there that we began to do a wonderful work for God. And we were put to work immediately. And that was our project manager there. From the get-go, we started to plan and map out every single day what we would do. From 8.30 a.m., starting with devotions, until about 10 o'clock at night, we start to engage in the city. You know, one of the sad things that we heard was that this local church had been there for about three years, but no one had even known of its existence in the community. So many times we feel that as long as we have a healthy community amongst our membership in a local church, that's what really matters. We block ourselves in our brick walls and we forget that there's something that exists beyond our church community. 
But here we realized that there is work that needed to be done. But this work could not be done by ourselves. We needed extra helpers. There were about ten of us that came down for this mission trip. And we prayed for more workers. And God sent forth about another ten from the Taiwan Adventist College to be trained and to go out on outreach with us. So in total we had about 20 people who were going out faithfully day after day into the streets of Salu, preaching the gospel, inviting people for English classes, inviting people for healthy cooking classes, and inviting people for evangelism too. We linked the two together. During the day we used to do training for the church members, training on discipleship, training on small groups, training on Adventist identity. Many of the church members had been recently baptized, but not many of them were grounded in the doctrines of our church. And so in terms of worship, how to conduct an adequate worship service, how to train and discipline children, we had to conduct training for the church members alone, but also for the students who were coming from the Adventist College nearby. During the day we did training and outreach. During the nights we held evangelism. And God began to bless our efforts. And so we used to go downtown into the streets of Salu and hand out these brochures to each and every person. These were cold contacts. We'd never met them before. They'd never heard of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And faithfully after a week, we started not only to share with others about the English classes, but we also sang Christmas carols just a few days ago on the 25th of December. And we spread joy by going out to key locations in the city, by going to the homes of people and singing Christmas carols with them, by praying with them, by opening the Word of God to them. And these people's hearts started to get warmed. And then they came out for our English classes. And the picture is a little bit dark here, but most of the people that you see are people that came because of our invitations. We had about 30 seekers, 30 new friends who came along to this church. People that we met in all the stores uh, surrounding the church. People that we met in the streets. 20 of us fanned across the city and we began to invite people for these classes. And they were eager to learn the English language and Western cooking. And as we began to make friends with them, their barriers start to break down. And they realized that these people were truly friendly people. I could share testimony after testimony with you. At the end of the first week, we had people share their testimonies of what they learned from our English class. And one after one, they all came up to the front. And you know what they said? They said that something is different about this church. They said we've never experienced the kind of friendly smiles, the warmth, that we've experienced in this church before. They said this is truly something that was missing in their lives. We had a 13-year-old girl that received a flyer at a bus stop and she came faithfully day after day. We had working professionals. We had people working in the telecom industry, people working in IT, people working in insurance. In fact, there were two girls, Amber and Lucy, who were about our age, maybe about 25, 26, they had working for a large insurance company and they were coming regularly, day after day, to receive classes in English. 
But as the barriers began to be broken down, as we fellowship with them over dinner, they were open to hearing our health talks in the evening, followed by evangelism. And if, this was a picture of our evangelistic series. The, the hall was packed with people. There were days when it was packed. There were other days when the numbers were low as well. But we moved forward by faith. And in fact, the mission trip is still going on. I had to leave early to come here for GYC. But the evangelism ends this coming Sabbath. And for two days, the rest of the members will stay on and do follow-up work and train the church members in how to follow up and do visitations. This was the model that Christ had outlined. While we didn't do it in the way we would have liked, we still ran evangelism, but we combined it with training together. And we saw a number of people come out. In fact, there was a lady who lived right across the street from the church. And as we started to sing Christmas carols within the church, she heard us from a distance, and she came along with her son. And she started coming along for the evangelistic series as well. It says here in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. You get the impression that when Jesus did his work, he did it thoroughly. There is not a single town or village that was unturned by him. But he went to every city, he went to every village, he went to every synagogue, every church, and he taught, he trained, he preached the word of God, but he also healed. This is a holistic form of evangelism. It was not just preaching the word of God through evangelism, but it was also teaching and training, and it involved, involved healing as well. Every sickness and every disease. And that's why in our mission trip and in our local church in Melbourne, what we do is we train, we preach, and we also heal people by teaching them about the health message. All three combined together leads to a dramatic transformation. And it says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. As Christ began to do the work of an evangelist, as Christ went from city to city, from town to town, from village to village, as he interacted with people like you and I, as he saw what their needs were, you sense that his heart was stirred. His heart was moved with compassion for them. And it is as a result of his work that he said the following, Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. Jesus realized that this work could not be completed by him alone. But he invested all his time and energy in equipping twelve disciples because he knew that if they were to spend time with him, as it says in the book of Mark, and he ordained twelve that they should be with him and that he might send them forth to preach. Christ's only condition is that the disciples spend time with him. But then the condition of going out to preach was not something that Christ said was compulsory. But the critical thing was that they were 
spiritually mature in Christ, it is only after that stage that he would let them out to preach the gospel. And so as Christ interacted with people, he said, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into the harvest. As we spend time in Taiwan, as we interact with people on the streets, people who had never heard the gospel before, we sensed and our hearts were moved with compassion for them because we realized the need to train disciples. There were no workers in the church. And we realized that after our team left, we were fearful of what would happen to the church. Would people just be baptized and leave a year from now? Or would they also grow to be faithful disciples, training and equipping others, teaching the Word of God to others? There's a lady called Angela who came along for our English classes, and she was so moved by the friendship and the warmth and the love that she also joined us for Christmas caroling. And you know what the amazing thing was? She also started handing out brochures to others. She was someone who was coming along to our classes, but she was so moved by what she was seeing in our classes that she decided to join us as well. And she was more zealous than any one of us put together. She was handing out all these flyers to all the seekers on the streets in the marketplace and was inviting them to the English class because her life had been transformed. And friends, the same thing can happen to us today as well. Sometimes we think that the more training we get, training and more training, then once we know enough, then we can do something for God. But Jesus clearly went out into the streets, went onto the highways and byways, and taught others, and his heart was moved with compassion as a result. And it was only then that he called for laborers to enter into the harvest field. Friend, Christ is calling us to do the same as well. Evangelism must be combined with training. Evangelism cannot go alone. It must be combined with training. Training cannot go by itself. It must be combined with evangelism. When the two are combined and interlinked, there will be a dramatic explosion of disciples. As the disciples hear the Word of God, as they, as they receive it, as they live it out, and as they share it, it becomes clear. It becomes natural for them to share the Word of God with others. And so at this point, we're going to close with a word of prayer, and we're going to have a time for questions and answers. If you have questions about the presentation today, you're welcome to come and ask questions, and I'll be happy to answer these questions for you. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for being with us today. Father, we have learned something perhaps that is a paradigm shift. We have seen that in the Great Commission, Christ not only promised the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, but he promised that he would be in our presence through the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit. Christ also promised that we were to make disciples for the end time. Christ promised that we were supposed to go and preach the Word of God to make disciples of Jesus by baptizing but also training the disciples. We saw the explosion that took place amongst the early disciples 
as they faithfully followed that commission. We saw as Barnabas followed the commission and began to train and invest his life in Saul. And we see the dramatic explosion that took place because of Paul's ministry. And we see how that led to a number of people becoming disciples of Christ who went about everywhere preaching the word of God until the world was turned upside down. Father, we believe that something similar can happen here as well. If there are 12 people 2,000 years ago, I see far more in this auditorium. Father, I pray that you'd help us grant the vision, understand the broader vision of what you have in mind for us, such that the Great Commission can be truly fulfilled in the 21st century. I ask these things now, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I'm going to open this time up now for question and answers. We have a few minutes before we move on to our time of prayer. And so you're welcome to come up to uh, the podium there and ask questions. Okay, my understanding is that the reason Jesus hasn't come yet, I mean, in the past, Noel and White said there were times that he could have come had people followed through with things. But the reason he hasn't now is because not only his patience and long-suffering, but everybody, the word is to be reached to everyone, and everyone is to have a choice, right? Basically. So my question is this. If the apostles evangelized the whole then known world, why didn't Jesus come then? Because of the prophecy, 1260-year prophecy. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Because I'm thinking, well, if they got everybody, (laughs) okay. Yeah, sure. I didn't didn't hear the answer, which I think is valid. But at the same time, we must remember that when the Bible says the known world, it was the world in context of where, uh, in the context of Jerusalem. But not the whole world. Not the whole world. Right, okay. So when it says the known world, it was everything that was relevant. To the people then. To the people back then. That makes sense. Okay. All right. Thanks for that. Does anyone have any other questions? Yes. Hi. I have a question in terms of evangelism. Um, I noticed that the small groups and you know inviting people is a method I used to use in my home country, and it used to work. But when I came here, I noticed that most of the people we're not comfortable even if you invited them home you know they're just busy so what other methods can you do if that doesn't work if you're trying to invite people they're just hesitant or they're busy what do you do okay that's a great question um i want to address this idea of whether small groups are culturally based the truth is that small groups whether they take place in ghana or whether they take place in india or Australia, or here in the U.S., there is no real difference. In fact, in secular countries, people are longing for genuine fellowship. And in Australia, we've been running small groups there to great effect, because a lot of people are hungering for genuine fellowship. They're hungering for a place where they can actually feel accepted and made a part of a church community. And so, in answering that question, Firstly, a misconception is that small groups only work in certain countries. And oftentimes I hear people say that. But in reality, small groups can take place in any country of the world. Why? Because everyone needs relationships. Everyone needs to feel a part of a community. And more so in Western countries, which are more and more secular, you sense that people need genuine fellowship and community. 
And so, going off that, we find that small groups are useful because it is a way of discipling members, but it is also used as a way of evangelizing to those who have never heard the gospel as well. Okay, so does that answer your question? I think I'm forgetting a part of it. Yeah, sir. Yeah, if you can come forward and just to add to what she was saying, I just think that I'm from Africa as well, and I just know that people um, are more comfortable coming to your home. And um, in America, I think it's more that people are just so busy um, that it's hard for them to even spend that time with you. So um, I guess what I'll just add to what she was saying is that you you may have to befriend them first. Um, because it's hard to just, you know, have people that you just met the first time or maybe a, a few times, you know, ask them to come over y- y- your home. So I think what she's, what she's seen is that back where she's from, it is easier, uh, even if you meet strangers, actually, if we just come over your home, it's fine with them. But here it's not like, like that. It's hard for, for people to actually make that step into your home if you just met them a few times or even once. So. Okay, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, we run a ministry on a secular campus and we invite people literally off, off the street and we invite them to our small groups. Now that's a ministry that can work if you have a secular campus close to your church. But addressing your question specifically, yes, it is true that people are more likely to come out if you have built some kind of rapport with them through your workplace or through your church community or even through um, going out on outreach, it's true that people need to feel a sense of friendship before they're likely to come out to your place. Now, the other thing is that, yes, in a Western world, people are more and more busy. But I've also found that in Western countries, Small groups are effective because if you run them on Friday evening, firstly, it's the start of the Sabbath. All your members have nothing better to do than keep the Sabbath. And so we run our small groups at, during Sabbath time. But it's also the time when a lot of people have finished their work. They're free on Friday evenings. And we get a number of working professionals coming along to our small groups, even though they're busy. All it requires is a personal invite. All it requires is the compassion of Christ to reach out to people in your workplace and invite them to your small groups. And it's from there that they can actually come into contact with other church members. And it's from there that they can actually start to develop an interest in spiritual things. And that's what happened with me and many others as well. I was not interested in spiritual things, but someone persisted and constantly invited me to their small group. Now, I was a busy person because I was working in a secular job back then. But I came along to the small groups and hearing the word of God, my heart started to be softened. As I saw the genuine fellowship within that small group, I realized that there was something I was missing in my life. And gradually, the barriers in my heart began to break down. And I started to say, maybe there's something to what they're preaching about. So it was firstly the friendship that won me over. But then I thought, there's something different about these people. And my heart began to be opened toward the message that they were preaching as well. And so I believe, regardless of how busy they might be, if you run the small groups, you will see people start to come in. 
Okay, I have another question about small groups. I'm from Utah, and we started a small group, my husband and I and a couple from the church, and there was probably about 10 or 6 of us, and we've been doing this for like three years now, and two people that have been coming, <laughs> well, the one, and it's been in her home, and we, we've gone through Bible studies a whole set, and then Steps to Christ, now we're doing Great Controversy, but she be, she went back to be going to becoming LDS. But she said, "I still want you to come, you know, because her friendship means a lot. She still lets us study with her, so we are." But but I think somehow we we've, we've not been trained. I mean, we heard about small groups concepts several years ago, so we okay, we're going to do this. But we haven't been trained to know how to draw people to a decision or or instead of just a social club. I mean, it's not a bad thing, you know. But I mean. And, and of course, we want to be friends for eternity, so it's fine. But how do you draw people to a decision? Uh, this is a spiritual decision, yeah. you mean, rather than just coming yeah. for friendship. Yeah, spiritual decision. You know, I mean, you hear all this wonderful information, but then do you make a choice, or how do you do that? Okay. All right. Great question. I'm glad we're going to more practical things now. <laughs> now, this workshop is not on small groups, even though I emphasized on it. But I've been actively involved with small groups. Um, discipleship goes hand in hand with small groups. Why? Because discipleship is involved with members and it's your members once they're trained and equipped that they can then become effective workers for God within the context of small groups. Now let me differentiate the two for you first. Discipleship exists purely for members. When the members are trained and become faithful disciples for God, when they become workers for God, they are spread across in the context of small groups which run purely for the function of soul winning. So does that make sense? Small groups exist for the sole function of, of evangelizing to the lost. They're a soul winning tool. Discipleship groups, on the other hand, focus on your members to train and equip them to become workers for God. And tomorrow I'll be giving you the big picture perspective on taking, going from an unbeliever to a worker for God. Okay? So that's the first thing to clarify. Discipleship is for members. Small groups are for non-members. But it also works because those who have been discipled through your discipleship groups now have an outlet to evangelize to others. Training plus evangelism in the context of small groups. So can you see why small groups are effective? Because you don't need to wait just for once a year when you conduct evangelism. But small groups are a mini-evangelism that's taking place throughout the year, every single week, one night a week. And so coming back to your question there, small groups can be effective because it enables us to conduct evangelism once a week. Okay, so how do you convert someone from just friendship towards developing a spiritual interest? Now that's a great question because I served as a Bible worker and we worked on a secular campus, and I can tell you story after story. But we had started about with six to eight members, and we grew that group to about 40 people. Many of them were not interested in spiritual things, which was fine. We had a large turnover rate. Every single day we used to go out as Bible workers, we used to invite them to our care groups, what we call them, or small groups, and they used to come along on Friday evenings. And it began to explode. And suddenly every star, everyone started to wake up and they said, yes, there's something powerful that's happening here. A lot of students used to come out for our small group meetings on Friday evenings. But you know what? Our work as members and as 
Bible workers was not just to look for those who were coming up. Our work was to discern who was being moved by the Holy Spirit. We invite them as friends, but we don't just leave them as friends. They're welcome to come back week after week, but sometimes it may take months or years for them to develop a spiritual interest. It requires ongoing persistence. But you know what? As a member, you're trained as a faithful disciple to discern on whose heart the Spirit of God is moving. And so as we came together and did Bible study, we used to look at the seekers' faces. We used to see if they were nodding, if they were convicted by the message, if they were also responding. We had four sessions. The first session, four components of every small group. The first component was time for mingling and fellowship. We used to break bread together. And that's how we used to mingle and get to know the seekers. We used to come out for our small groups. The second set... The second step was that we used to sing songs together. The third step was that we used to have a Bible study together. Now, this was not a theologically based discussion, as oftentimes happens in our churches. This was just a simple Bible study coming from the Gospels, from the parables, um, something that people could relate to and identify with. Then fourthly, we used to conclude with praise and prayer requests. Now, why are these last two components important? We mingled with people so that we got a chance to know them by befriending them. We had a meal together so that we fellowship with them. We then sang songs together. We then had Bible study together so that we could see how the Word of God was impacting their lives. Like Jesus, who faithfully seed the, uh, sowed the seed of the Gospel, we were doing the same thing. And then finally, during the praise and prayer request, we used to actually see how people used to pray to God. You know, when people first came out, they prayed for, the, for their cats and their dogs. But then eventually you used to sense that people opened up more and more. They start to pray for their own spiritual well-being. And you could see how the Spirit of God was moving them from someone who was not interested to someone who was developing a spiritual interest. And that can take weeks, it can take months, but it requires discernment to see as the Spirit of God is working in people. Remember when Jesus came to Nicodemus, he talked about the wind blowing. You cannot see the wind, but you can see the effects of the wind. And that's how the Holy Spirit works as well. You begin to see a change taking place in their lives. Those who were once formerly not interested in spiritual things start to develop an interest in spiritual things. They start asking questions. They start taking an interest in coming to church. They want to know more about Bible study. They want to start Bible studies outside small group settings. And when you start to see that change take place, we then used to channel them to one-to-one Bible studies, where we as Bible workers or members used to give them Bible studies. And then it would lead to a decision for baptism. Okay, so does that make sense, just to give you an overall picture of how things work? Yes. Um, Are there any other questions? Feel free to ask. Um, I'm happy to go through the nuts and bolts. If there are things that weren't covered in the seminar, I'm happy to go through additional details with you. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you mentioned um, the infilling of the Holy Spirit and correlated with the infilling of God's Word. Mm -hmm. Could you expound on that a little bit? Are they synonymous? When we talk about this convention being fill me, our earnest plea, we think of the Holy Spirit. Is it synonymous with being filled with God's Word? 
Could you just expound a little bit on that, please? Okay, that's a great question. I want to be a little bit careful here because every presenter had been given the same topic. <laughs> and so they came across it from multiple different angles. But if you were to ask me, in my personal opinion, some, the infilling of the Holy Spirit is not just some mysterious um, uh, supernatural experience, but rather, when you look at the Bible closely, you sense that whenever the Spirit of God comes upon people, it is because they are saturated with the Word of God. You know that Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God because He saturated His mind with the Word of God. How do I know that? Because there's multiple occasions where Jesus quotes directly from Scripture in His ministry. Not only that, but He sent that the Word of God was central to the life of each disciple. And I'll go through concrete examples with you tomorrow to show how each disciple was grounded in the Word of God. And they grew in the Word of God. And as a result, they were able to share and impart the Word of God unto others. And that's what led to the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the function of the Holy Spirit is not just to fill us mysteriously for no purpose or no reason. The infilling of the Holy Spirit is, like you said, synonymous with being filled with the Word of God. Now, it's one thing to memorize Scripture. It's another thing to apply it and pass it on to others. Internalizing the Word of God is different to just memorizing the Word of God. Okay? Remember, in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, The Word of God was made flesh. Jesus dwelt amongst us. One of my friends put it this way. He said, If you take the Word of God and put it in paper and print, what do you get? You get the Bible. But if you take the Word of God and put it in flesh, you get Jesus Christ. If you take the Word of God and put it in you, you get Christ dwelling in you. You get the Spirit of God dwelling within you. Okay, so does that make sense? Jesus was the Word of God. He was simply a manifestation of everything we know when we read the Word of God. The Word of God contains power, as it says in Hebrews 4 verse 12. It says, For the Word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and of marrow, and a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The Word of God is divinely inspired. It is God-breathed, as it said in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16. And so, there's something special about the Bible. It's not just like any other book that you would read. When you read the Word of God and you memorize it, you meditate upon it such that it's internalized and it's saturated within your life, the Spirit of God, the, Spirit of God, the function, is to simply bring back to remembrance that which you've already meditated upon and internalized such that it saturates your very being. Your entire fabric of your being is saturated with the Word of God such that the Spirit of God is enabled to live powerfully through you. Does that answer your question? And so what we need today is not just more preachers. We need people who are genuine disciples of Christ. If we are to see the work of God finished, we need an army of youth, an army of members in our congregation who are spirit-filled Christians, who are filled with the Scripture, who have memorized it, internalized it, and are living it out as faithful disciples of Christ. That is the infilling of the Spirit, as I see it from the Scriptures. 
And if you go through the Pauline writings, all of Paul's writings, you will see that the development of disciples is closely linked with the Word of God. The two of them go together. You cannot separate them. Are there any other questions? Um, maybe the things that need to be clarified, I'd be happy to answer your questions. Um, just doing a quick time check. Um, what is the time? Okay. Okay, sure. All right, well, let's, um, we're going to conclude our session here. Um, let's just spend time in corporate prayer. We're out of time, so I'm just going to bow our heads for a word of prayer, and then we'll move on to the next section. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this afternoon, I thank you for those who've come for our session this afternoon to receive training in what it means to be a disciple. And Father, today we saw the biblical foundation and the need for discipleship. Tomorrow, as we go through our last session, looking at how we can be spiritual disciples, I ask that what we've learned about today for many of us, it might be a paradigm shift, but I ask that you would enable us to use what we've learned and implement it in our local churches. That evangelism alone is not sufficient, but as you gave us in the Great Commission, evangelism must be combined with training if we are to see results in our local churches and if the world is to be turned upside down for you. And so I ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.